Good morning, everybody. Thank you to the worship team. It was a wonderful time in the Lord's presence. We want to look at the lives of three men this morning as we will get to the scriptures that speak about them now. The first man's name, well, he's probably a very young man, maybe in his early teenage years. Uh, his name is Onesimus. Okay, Onesimus. Onesimus is a runaway slave. He lived in the middle, uh, in the first century, about AD 65, AD 63, maybe. We pick up on his story. But he's a slave who's run away. Now, in the first century world, slavery was quite common. Some estimates say that up to perhaps a third of the population in the Roman Empire uh, lived as slaves. Uh, Onesimus was a runaway slave. He'd stolen some things from his master and somehow used that to finance his trip. But while he's on his trip, he meets up with a man you might have heard of. His name was Paul, the apostle. And somehow in his connection with Paul or before his connection with Paul, he gets born again. He becomes a Christian. He becomes a believer. And God changes his heart. And he realizes that he has to go back to his master to make right what he has done wrong. Now, in the first century Roman world, uh, various things could happen to runaway slaves when they came back to their masters. It's important here to realize that slaves at this time were primarily viewed as property, not persons. And so they were viewed simply in terms of their economic value. For some of you that might feel familiar where you work, uh, just your, uh, some, your value is determined by your, va your input and your econ economic value to the company. But slaves were property, not people. And so if they were run away, they, you'd lost economic value. And so some of the Roman laws said that you could extract from the slave what you felt was recompense due to you. There's records of slave masters killing their slaves to set an example to other slaves, to show them what happens when you run away. Various forms of very cruel punishment to happen, definitely forms of beating, because an example had to be set of what happened when you run away. But Onesimus comes to faith in Jesus, and he realizes he has to go back and make right what he has done. And Paul refers to him as a son, as a son in the faith is the implication. And so Onesimus is returning to his master, really uncertain of his fate and his future. The second man in our, that we're looking at today in our story is Onesimus' master. His name is Philemon. Uh, because we're in South Africa, you can say Philemon. But um, I'm English and want to sound like I should belong here, so I'm saying Philemon. It's quite close to the, probably the Greek as well. Uh, Philemon is a slave owner. He's Onesimus' master. And he has to make a decision, as Paul writes to him, but as we'll read later, about what he's going to do. Philemon is a man of some means. He uh, owns property, owns slaves, we're not sure how many, um, but he's also a believer, he's also a Christian. Uh, in fact, there's a church that meets in his home, so he probably served at, like a life group leader or a pastor for the church that met in his home. So he's a Christian leader, he's got a uh, slave who's returning to him, who's become a Christian, um, and they've got to make a decision about what to do. And so the third person in our story, Paul, He's our change provocateur this morning. He, has to, he wants something to change in the relationship between Onesimus and Philemon. He wants change to happen. 
And as we've been doing our series that we finished last week on faith to flourish, and we read through Thessalonians, I was struck by the, the need to change. There's things that God wants us to do where we need to change. And it's good to know, and what we want to look a little bit today, is how do we initiate real change? How do we initiate real change? Change that moves beyond good intentions and hopefully some of the good New Year's resolutions we're going to have. Real change, change that makes a difference. How do we perhaps become better spouses, better parents? How do we participate with God and change in that process where it speaks of in Romans 8, where it says he's conforming us to the image of his son? Do you understand that if you want to become like Jesus, one of you is going to change and it's not Jesus? All right? Conforming, becoming like Jesus is about changing. But what about initiating change beyond just ourselves, initiating change beyond our homes, perhaps in our extended family, as over this season we often meet with extended family? What about change in our workplaces? How do we start change where things are regarded as being done in a certain way? Slavery was a first century institution. Things were just that way. That was how it was done. That was the condition and the fate for many people at that time. How do we change things that are regarded as normal but not necessarily godly? How do we change things that, are always, that have always been done this way, things that are just the way they are? Now, we get different kinds of change. Some change happens slowly, like aging. It happens slowly. Well, it should, actually. Although my wife says I've lost half my hair in the last two weeks. I don't know. So some change happens not slowly. Some change happens quickly. And some change is a bit more radical. Some change is personal. Some change is corporate or organizational. Some change is internal, and some change is forced on us from the outside. Change can be a very complex thing. And so depending on the kind of change that God is challenging you and me to, and the change that he wants in our life, there might be different plans and different processes that we need to put in place once we realize what God is initiating but today we want to look at the fact that real change starts from the inside out. And that's the title of my message today, is that real change starts in the heart. Real change starts in the heart. Once it's started there, it might flesh out and work out differently. But whether it's personal, corporate, slow, gradual change or radical change, real change starts in the heart. And I wonder if you think a little bit, what has God changed in your life? And you'll probably find that most of that change started in your heart. The question today, though, is also what is God wanting to still change? What might God want to still change in your life? What change is God provoking in you? So Paul writes a letter to Philemon to provoke change in Philemon's life. And so we're going to look today at an example from the book of Philemon, how real change starts in the heart. So if you have a Bible or a device here, please turn to the book of Philemon. We're going to study a whole book today. How's that? 25 verses. Okay. If you want to find Philemon, start in the back of your Bible with Revelation and go left. It's just before Hebrews and just after the, uh, 1 and 2 Timothy and Titus. If it's in your device, it's at the bottom. Okay. So the book of Philemon. Paul writes this letter, which is one of Paul's more personal letters. Paul the Apostle, although he lays down that kind of title, he writes a letter to a fellow believer, Philemon, about this man, Onesimus, and about the situation that I described earlier. And the book of Philemon, there's this little masterful piece of letter writing, and there's 
many layers that we can find in the book, but we want to look a little bit today at the change dynamic in the book of Philemon. And so Paul starts in the book of Philemon, uh, and he writes and he says, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus. Now Paul's probably in prison, most likely in Rome at this time, in the mid-80s, 60s, but he doesn't see himself as a, a prisoner of the government or a victim of the government. He sees himself as a prisoner of Christ. This is the only letter where Paul introduces himself this way. Normally in Paul's letters, he would introduce himself as Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ. And he very intentionally doesn't appeal to that authority or go to that space. He introduces himself as a prisoner of Christ. Goes on and it says, And Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, and Philemon's name means the one who loves, the brother who loves. Phileo is one of the uh, Greek words for love, brotherly love. So Philemon, whether that was his birth name or a name he adopted as he became a Christian, but he is known, as you'll see later, as one who loves the brothers. So to Philemon, our brother who loves, our dear friend and fellow worker, also Aphia, our sister, and Archippus, who our fellow soldier, they're probably members of Philemon's household and to the church that meets in your home. So although this letter is very personal, it's not very private because Paul intends for more people to, to know about what's happening here. Paul gives his day in a greeting and he says, Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 4, Paul goes on and he says, I always thank my God as I remember you in my prayers. And because we're talking a little bit about change that's in the heart today, always remember if you want somebody to change, or if you want yourself to change, start by remembering them in your prayers. Just a tip for spouses, not going to pick on the gender. But if you want somebody to change, prayer works much better than nagging. People will become what you pray for them to be, not what you... Also, I believe. Okay. Do I change when you pray or do I change when you nag? Okay. She says pray, you see? So, pray. I thank my God as I remember you in my prayers, because I hear about your love for all his holy people and your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. So Philemon has a reputation. Philemon has a testimony that what Paul hears others saying about him is that he's known for his love for God's holy people and he's known for his faith in Christ Jesus. Paul says, I pray that your partnership with us in the faith may be effective in deepening your understanding of every good thing we share for the sake of Christ. So as you practice your faith, you grow and you understand some things. Your love, Philemon, has given me great joy and encouragement because you, brother, have refreshed the hearts of the Lord's people. And so Philemon has a testimony that Paul has heard about. Perhaps he knows him personally, but it says he's heard about him. He's known for his faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. He's known for loving the Lord's people for loving the saints, and he's also known for refreshing the hearts of the saints. That's Philemon's reputation. That's Philemon's testimony. That's what he's established. When he got saved, those are the things that God worked in his life and through his life as a gift to the believers and perhaps for those in the broader city of Colossae where they live. So I wonder what people have heard about you. What is your reputation? And I'm not asking you to be all spiritual now. I'm not like, you know, what's your name in the spirit or your reputation? What do people hear about you? What is your testimony? 
Philemon's was that he had faith in Jesus, that he loved the saints and he refreshed their hearts. It probably means he was, I, I have people like this in my life. They're always encouraging me. They're building up my heart, my inner person. They, when a day is tough, they'll go, you know, I'm praying for you. Or when I just need a cup of tea or coffee, they'll walk in and say, can I make a cup of tea for you? And they'll make it. Simple things that refresh my heart. What's your testimony? Because it really matters what God has done in you and through you. And so this matters to Paul, and that's why he mentions it early in his letter. Based on what he's heard about Philemon, based on Philemon's reputation, Paul is going to adopt a certain course of action. He's going to handle this matter between Philemon and Onesimus in a certain way. And the things that God has done in your life will be the platform and the foundation that he uses to initiate change. The things you've gone through, things you've experienced, God will work good in your life to bring about change, not only in yourself, but in others as well. And so we move on to verse 8. Because of Philemon's reputation, verse 8 starts with the word, therefore. There's an old rhyme that says, when you read therefore in the scriptures, you must ask, wherefore, why? Because of what? Because of Philemon's reputation, Paul is adopting a certain course of action. Philemon, verse 8, and onwards reads as follows. Therefore, because of your testimony, because of your reputation, although in Christ I could be bold and order you to do what you ought to do. Now that sounds a little strange. Paul had the office of an apostle in the first century church. The Bible, as we have it today, the New Testament hadn't been written yet, so if they wanted to know what to believe or how to behave as Christians, they couldn't go and pick up a Bible and look it up and, and see what God had told them to do. The apostles carried that. The apostles were people who knew the teachings of Jesus deeply, who knew the teachings of Jesus well. In this instance, the 12, and Paul became one of them. They'd met Jesus personally in an encounter. So they carried huge authority in the church. So when Paul says, I could tell you what to do, he's not being arrogant, he's not being presumptuous. That was the authority that he had. It was a real authority, and it's important to understand that. What, what is significant here is Paul, as it were, takes off that mantle. He lays it down. Let's read on in the text. Although in Christ I could be bold and order you to do what you ought to do, yet I prefer to appeal to you on the basis of love. What's Philemon known for? Loving the saints. One of the things he's known for is loving the saints. So because of who Philemon is, Paul decides, I'm not going to command, I'm going to appeal. I'm going to ask for a favor based on Philemon's reputation. Goes on, the text says, and it is none other than Paul. I'm an old man now, so I'm not strong enough physically to come and push you around and bully you. I'm an old man. I'm also a prisoner of Christ Jesus. My legal standing is not all that great. Can't enforce something on you legally. I appeal to you for my son, Onesimus. The name Onesimus means useful. It's a common slave name. How would you like to be called useful? Or would you name your children useful? You know, sometimes in the Bible we read these names, like in the Romans chapter 16, at the greetings, you know, greet Secundus and Primus. It's number one, number two. Those are slave names. Now, Onesimus is a slave name. It means useful, okay? typical name that could have been given to a slave. I appeal to you for my son, Onesimus, who became my sons while I was in chains. So while Paul's probably in prison in Rome, somehow Onesimus becomes a spiritual son. He comes to faith and 
Paul develops a heart for him. Formerly, Paul writes, he was useless to you. In other words, he didn't live up to his name. Philemon lives up to his name. He's known for loving the saints. But Onesimus was useless. He didn't live up to his name. But now, something has changed in Onesimus' heart. Something has changed in his relationship and in his life as he's walked and been discipled by Paul. But now, he has become both useful both to you and to me. Now Onesimus is in the place where he can live up to his name. I wonder what Philemon's view would have been of his runaway slave. Remember, he's thinking of Onesimus only at this stage in economic terms, most probably. He's got economic value to him, and he has improved value. So very fair to say that Onesimus would probably have seen him as a rather useless piece of property, actually. Paul writes, and he carries on in verse 12, and he says, I am sending him, Onesimus, who is my very heart. Remember, one of the things that Philemon is known for is refreshing the hearts. And so Paul masterfully just positions Onesimus in this place as being the heart. He's starting to appeal to Philemon to be who he is known to be. I'm sending him, who is my very heart, back to you. I would have liked to keep him with me so that he could take your place in helping me while I'm in chains for the gospel. This was common first century practice. When one of the brothers or sisters in Christ was locked up in jail, the other believers in the town or the city would find a way to assist them and help them. First century jails were terrible places. It wasn't like the government looked after you, you relied on the goodwill of others, perhaps even to feed you and for your basic needs. And so it was common practice in the first century church when fellow believers were locked up, that the others would take care of them. So Paul's not being presumptuous here. I would have liked to keep him with me so that he could take your place in helping me while I'm in chains for the gospel. But I did not want to do anything without your consent. Paul the Apostle, the prisoner of Christ, is completely respecting Philemon's position in this matter. So that any favor you do will not seem forced, but would be Voluntary. Paul is asking for a favor. You'll see ladies asking for more than this, but at this stage what we see that Paul is asking that perhaps Philemon considers releasing Onesimus from service to him and releasing him into service to Paul. In other words, taking his place. He's asking, first of all, that Onesimus doesn't get a harsh punishment for running away, that he doesn't get brutalized or something cruel happens to him. And then on top of that, he's asking that Perhaps Philemon considers sending him back. He's asking for a little bit more than that, but we'll get there now. But Paul doesn't want to command you. And so what we've read now in this paragraph is Paul's appeal for Onesimus. Paul's appeal for Onesimus. Paul has apostolic authority. He could really order Philemon to do this. You can say, Philemon, as your leader, I think this is a good thing to do. I want him to help me do this for me. But Paul lays that down. He lays down that apostolic authority and he chooses not to do it. He appeals instead of commanding. Why does he do that? He appeals also, by the way, on the basis of Philemon's reputation. Philemon then becomes this ideal candidate for change that Paul wants to initiate into the church of the time. Why does Paul ask for a favor? Why doesn't he just command? Obviously, what happens to Onesimus is incredibly important to him. It's significant. He really cares for him. He is my very heart, Paul says. 
So couldn't he just have assured the outcome he wanted by going, thou shalt? But he chooses not to, and he asks for a favor. Why does Paul do that? I believe the reason for that is, is that a command never touch, doesn't have to touch your heart. If I tell my daughter or anybody tells you to do something, it's an act of obedience. Either you do it or you don't. It doesn't necessarily have to go through your heart. But when someone asks you for a favor, they're asking for goodwill, generally that would have to go through your heart. Because Paul wants something in Philemon's heart to change. And so he asks for a favor and doesn't give a command. We also see that Paul asks big. He's not scum, okay? He's not shy here in what he asks. He's not asking for a little thing. He's asking big. He's asking Philemon to do a big thing, to let Onesimus come back to him, to give up something that might be of value to him, to do things differently from the way they've always been done. And he's asking him to release him back to him. So Paul asks big, but it's important to also notice he asks outside the norms of the day. It wasn't normal just to let your runaway slaves go unpunished. It wasn't normal just to say, oh, you know, it doesn't matter, you go help Paul. Because what do you do? What kind of example are you setting to your other slaves? What kind of example are you setting to the other slaves in the community? Now remember, Philemon's a church leader, but this is quite early on in the history of the church, maybe 30 or 35 years into the history of the church. They haven't been confronted with these things. Paul's already written in Galatians that in Christ there's neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free. Your socioeconomic standing doesn't matter. But how was that practically lived out and fleshed out in the church of the time? So Paul asks big, and he asks outside of the norms of the day. Normal would have been to punish Onesimus. At a minimum, Paul's asking that he doesn't get punished. He's also asking perhaps that he gets sent back to him. I wonder what the other slave owners in the church would have thought. Because there's a church that meets in Philemon's home. I wonder what they would have thought. I suspect, and I'm speculating completely here, that after this letter was read in the church, as would have been the common practice of the day, that a number of the other slave owners, perhaps in the church or other slave owners in the town, would have come to have a quiet word with Paul. Oh, not with Paul, sorry. With Philemon. To have another quiet word with Philemon. Philemon, you must understand, if you do what Paul's asking, you're making it very tough on us. Because this is the way things shouldn't be done, what Paul's asking. And sometimes the change that comes in our lives is not the way that God wants us to do, is not the way things are normally done. And I wonder what appeals for change are being made in your life? What change is God provoking in your life? It's also important to note that God doesn't often command change. I think sometimes he does. But most often God invites change. Have you considered how you've been speaking to your spouse? Have you considered the way you're treating your children? Have you considered the way that thing is always done in the office? How the, okay, let me not say tenders, but I will. Um, how those tenders work. Have you considered? Often God invites change. Why? Because he wants our hearts to change. Because real change always starts in the heart. And if our hearts can change, then the plans and the processes and the behaviors can follow 
from that place. Verse 15 in the book of Philemon goes on and he says, Paul writes and he says, perhaps, perhaps in this situation that happened where Onesimus ran away and you'll see later he stole some stuff to finance his trip, perhaps God was working good. Paul appeals to the providence of God. Perhaps the reason he was separated from you for a little while was that you might have him back forever. Now Paul starts challenging, no longer as a slave, but better than a slave, as a dear brother. He's very dear to me, but even dearer to you. I'm not quite sure if Philemon would have quite felt that way yet. Because remember, Onesimus was his useless slave. He's the one who'd run away. He's the one who'd done him in. He'd stolen some stuff. But Paul writes here, and he's starting to challenge Philemon. He's dear to me, but even dearer to you, both as a fellow man and as a brother in the Lord. Now, we read that statement, and it's quite easy to read. But in the first century world, that is a challenge. And Paul here challenges Philemon's view. How is Philemon going to see Onesimus? Is he going to see him purely just as property? Or is he going to see him as a person? Is he going to see him purely for his economic value? Or is he going to see him as a man, as a human being? And then beyond that, not just as a human being, but as a brother in the Lord. Paul starts challenging Philemon's view of Onesimus. It's important to note here that Paul's challenge is not based on his preferences. It's based on biblical values. All men, all humans are created in the image of God. Men and women together created in the image of God. And that gives them value. And it's that value statement that Paul is challenging Philemon's view. The view that was normal in the day. The view that things had always been done this way. Paul begins to challenge He challenges from the biblical view. So what do we regard as normal in our context and in our lives that don't necessarily align with Scripture, that don't necessarily align with God's ways? I'm wondering if God isn't challenging us to change some of those things that we regard as normal. Perhaps in your family, things have always just been done this way, and God's asking you to become like Paul an agent of change, to provoke change in people. What do we regard as normal? What do we regard as normal just about ourselves? It's just the way I am. And people have been nagging and praying for you to change for years. But your answer is always, it's just the way I am. And the challenge to change comes. Paul keeps on. He doesn't let up. Verse 17 So if you consider me a partner, because Philemon's a leader in the church, they're working together for God. If you consider me a partner, watch this. Welcome him, your runaway useless slave, as you would welcome me. How do you think Philemon would have welcomed the apostle Paul? I don't know if they had red carpets in the first century, but it would have kind of been more the red carpet treatment than the whack on the head at the back of the door treatment. Welcome him as you are, Paul is challenging Philemon. Welcome him as you would welcome me. And then Paul writes and he says, if, and it's a very soft if in the original language, if he has done you any wrong, which means I know he's done you wrong, or if he owes you anything, 
Paul writes and he says, charge it to me. So Philemon probably stole something because how would a slave finance his runaway trip? Probably stole some things from my Philemon. He definitely is in his debt. Now watch what Paul does. He says, I, Paul, I'm writing this with my own hand. So probably up until this point, perhaps Timothy was writing for him. Paul takes the pen and he says, I'm writing this with my own hand. And what does he write? He writes, I will pay it back. What's Paul doing here? What he's done now under Roman law is he's given Philemon legal tender. If Philemon wanted to go to court and say, Paul has harbored my runaway slave, he's kept him with me, and he owes me for this and this and this that he stole, because Paul wrote it in his own hand, Philemon could go to court and say, I have proof that this man will pay me what is owed to me. And so Paul here does something phenomenal. He takes responsibility for what Philemon, what Onesimus has done wrong. He takes responsibility for what Onesimus has stolen. I will pay it back. Then Paul writes, perhaps a difficult phrase for some of us, not to mention that you owe me your very self. Philemon is a Christian because of Paul's ministry. Paul ministered two and a half years at Ephesus, and the gospel went from there into the whole of Asia Minor, one of the cities where Philemon lived, Colossae, was reached by the gospel because of Paul's ministry. So that's what Paul is referring to. You owe me your very self. I do wish, brother, that I may have some benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Do what you're known for. Do be who you're known to be. Confident of your obedience, favorable response, I write to you knowing that you will do even more than I ask. Now that's quite a confident statement. Paul's actually hoping that Philemon sets Onesimus free, that he gives him his freedom. He's asking for more than just send him to me to help and more than just don't punish him. He's actually saying set him free. Because you see, what Philemon does becomes an example for every other person in the church. Becomes an example for how other slave owners that are believers are going to treat their slaves as well. So Paul assumes appropriate responsibility. He's asking a favor. He wants Philemon's heart to change. But it's not just cheap talk. In fact, in modern day parlance, we would say that Paul's putting his money where his mouth is. Paul's putting his money where his mouth is. I will pay it back. He's giving Philemon legal tender. Perhaps it's good to note at this point that each of us in this room, God, Jesus, has written over our lives, I will pay it back. He will pay back the sin, the consequence of our sin. The Bible's clear that he takes our sin on him and he paid the price for our sin. And so all Paul's really doing here is he's being like Jesus. I will pay it back. How can Paul be so confident? How can he have confidence that Philemon will do even more than he asked? It's because of Philemon's testimony, because of the reputation that he has. And so sometimes, based on who we are, God challenges us to change. He challenges us in our hearts to do things that are perhaps not the way things have always been done or we have always done things. But to make that change real, we also have to assume responsibility for change. And if you want to initiate change outside ourselves in our workplaces, we must realize that we have to assume responsibility for the change 
that we are initiating as well. Let's finish reading the letter so that we can say we read a whole book of the Bible in church today. Verse 22, Paul says, One thing more, prepare a guest room for me, because I hope to be restored to you in answer to your prayers. The early church prayed that the others would be released. That's normal practice. But Paul's just saying, I'm in Rome, you're in Colossae. Everyone knows Paul wants to go from Rome to Spain. I'm inverting on the map. From Rome to Spain. But Paul is saying, I'll come back to you. I'll go the opposite way from what I intend to sort this matter out. That's how serious I am. That's the level of responsibility that Paul is taking for Philemon to initiate change in Philemon's life. And so how does real change happen? What lessons do we see in Philemon? First of all, remember the change in your prayers. Remember in your prayers. Paul writes, as I remember you in my prayers, I pray for you. Your testimony or your reputation is important. What God has done in you and through you counts, and God can use that as a platform to initiate change, not only in your life, but in other people's lives and in other contexts as well. If God's doing that, appeal for change, just like Paul appeals to Philemon to change. Appeal for change, and if it's God, ask big. Don't be scared. Be brave. Ask big, but ask wisely. Ask based also on biblical principle. If you're going to challenge the status quo, challenge it based on scripture and not your personal preference. Challenge it based on godly values and principles, not your personal comfort. Assume responsibility for what you can. Now, we can't force people to change, just like Paul couldn't force Onesimus, Philemon, to change. Paul didn't know what the outcome was in writing this letter. He writes it with confidence. He writes it with faith. But the outcome is uncertain because Philemon has a real choice to make. But assume responsibility for what you can. We can't force people's hearts to change. But if we want real change, work with people's hearts because real change starts in the heart. Perhaps God is challenging you to change. Take note of the areas where others and God are provoking change in your life. Be prepared to challenge the status quo in your life. Assume responsibility for personal change and trust the Spirit of God to empower you. If God initiates the change through His Spirit, He will empower you to change. Change isn't always just about self-effort. In fact, if it's just up to ourselves, we hardly ever get long-term sustainable change right. Trust the Spirit of God to help us change and allow God to work in our hearts at a basic value level. King David had a similar experience. He just sinned terribly, committed adultery with Bathsheba. And he writes a song. It's recorded for us in Psalm 51. He writes a song about it. And in verse 10 of that song, he says, Create in me a clean heart, O God. And renew a steadfast, or some translations say, renew a right spirit within me. And perhaps that's also a good place this morning to start to consider change. That if we realize God is provoking us to change and challenging us to change, and we see that real change starts in the heart, that we pray and say, God, create in me a pure heart and renew in me a steadfast Spirit. So do we know what happened with Philemon and Onesimus? Anybody? Do you want to know? 
We're not, yes, please, okay. We're not certain. And we can't say with any degree of clarity. But there is this interesting analogy in church history. If these events happened around AD 65 and Onesimus was really young, maybe early teens. In the year 110, one of the church fathers was traveling and he comes to the city of Ephesus, which is very close to Colossae. And he meets the bishop of Ephesus and guess what his name was? His name was Onesimus. Onesimus, the bishop of Ephesus. Now we can't be certain that it's the same person. What we can be certain of is that there was a bishop in Ephesus in 110 AD who had a slave name. Useful. And perhaps it did happen. Perhaps Philemon did set Onesimus free and he did go and help Paul. And then he became a leader in the church, rising to a bishop of Ephesus. One of the interesting things we know from church history is that the bishop of Ephesus, Onesimus, was responsible for gathering all the, the letters of Paul that were circulating in Asia Minor at that time. So I like to think, I can't prove it, but wouldn't you, if you were Onesimus the slave, have kept the letter that ensured your freedom? That's the happy end to the story. But what change is God provoking in you? What change is he asking in your heart? And I'd like to invite you to stand and we're going to pray this morning. Father, thank you that each of us standing has a reputation. We have a testimony of what you've done in us and through us. And that that testimony can become a platform to initiate change in our world. And so, Lord, I pray for us over this time where perhaps it's a bit quieter for many. And we've got time to reflect and we've got some time to think. Won't you create in me, won't you create in us a pure heart and renew a right spirit within us so that we can become the agents of change in our world? Lord, you know that at Hatfield you've asked us to be a community on a mission. Help us to be a community whose hearts are challenged to change. Help us to be a community where real change starts in our hearts. I pray, Lord, for those you have spoken to this morning, that you have provoked, that you have challenged to change. That by your spirit you would create in them a new heart. But that you will give them the courage, the power, and the plan of how to accomplish the change that you want to affect in their lives and through their lives. So I pray your blessing on each one, Lord. I pray you bless each one as they go into this week, as we travel for the loved ones that are coming, for the loved ones that we'll meet. Thank you, Lord, for times of we, that we can be together. So I bless each person watching on YouTube, listening to my voice this day. In Jesus' name. Amen. So real change starts in the heart. If you feel you need some prayer, there will be some pastors, and if we can ask perhaps some of the shepherds and elders who are here to help us pray, we'd love to pray with you. Uh, you're welcome to come. Amen.